Okay, gentlemen, good morning, and thank you for the invitation. It's been a while since I've been to a men's breakfast, and I'm uh, sitting here thinking, what in the world is wrong with you, Connor, that you haven't been coming to these meetings? Uh, I don't know about having to hang out with guys like us so early in the morning, but it's certainly worth getting up for this breakfast. So, I'm not sure that I can guarantee anything with respect to the topic I've been given this morning, and basically that is how to be happy going to work and having a job. I mean, it's not called work for nothing, and we're not paid to be enslaved 40 plus hours a week for nothing. There are certain contingencies which come with this whole matter of being the family protector and provider, which will always be with us regardless. I had an uncle who worked for over 30 years out at the old Charleston Navy shipyard, and he hated it, hated it, hated getting up every day and going to work at the shipyard, and he yearned for the day that he could retire. The day came, he retired, and he was still miserable. So sometimes it's inside of the person, not inside of the job. Sometimes it's a heart matter and not a head matter. Sometimes it has almost nothing to do with external environmental circumstances. It's all on our inside. The very fact that I would have the invitation to talk specifically about daily joy in doing your your vocation would suggest that this is an important subject for men. It is. Very important subject. When two men are meeting each other for the first time, it, it goes something like this. Hi, I'm Brian. Or you're John. Where are you from, John? Yeah, well, I'm from James Island. I'm a local boy, too. What do you do? Right? It takes us about 30 seconds to ask the question, what do you do? After your name, after where you're from, comes what do you do? And that means what do you do for a living? And why is it that we pounce on that so quickly in the conversation? Because it is a core part of the male identity. Men get much of their identity from their jobs. If you were to ask a member of the fair sex, uh, or you would, you would watch two ladies introducing themselves to each other, it might be similar up to a point. Hi, I'm Susie. Oh, you're Jane. Uh, you're from these parts, Jane? Yeah, I grew up over on one of the islands. And, um, well, tell me about yourself. Well, I have three kids, and we live in so-and-so subdivision. And the lady's point of self-identification becomes not job outside of the house, but what? Job inside of the house. Home and family for the ladies and vocations for us men. We draw, I would say, most of our own identification from what we do. Which makes it really terrible when we lose our jobs. Doesn't it? It's one of the saddest things to deal with is a man whose identity has been so crushed by the fact that he no longer has a job to get up and go to, uh, go to, he does not have a paycheck to bring home. And even when retirement, like with my uncle, 
is a lifetime goal and retirement is achieved and the emptiness is still there. These issues of who we are based on what we do won't go away. Our vocations are key to our self-image. You know where we get the word vocation? It comes from the Latin vocari. Vocari means to call. Sounds like vocal, doesn't it? Vocari means to call, and we get the English word vocation from this sense that we are called to do what we do. That there is something beyond us that is interplaying within our lives to get us to a certain place and a certain contribution in this world so we can make a we can actually make a contribution not only to the world, but to our own inner peace. So, no guarantees that we can ever be completely happy with whatever job that we're in, but I'd like to offer you a couple of, perhaps, new perspectives on men being happy in their vocation. And here's the first one. All honest work is holy. All honest work is holy. Now, I have to qualify it a little bit by throwing that word honest in there because we don't want to say, well, I gave you a, a, a good deal on crack cocaine out in the parking lot. I was honest with you. you. You know what I'm trying to say here, so help me out a little bit. But all honest work within the framework of of morals and ethics as we walk in them is holy. Now I say that's a pretty big step for us to contemplate and to accept because we've done a pretty good job in compartmentalizing life between the holy and the unholy. Holy work means you're ordained. Holy work means you go to the seminary. Holy work means you wear a white collar. Holy work means you go overseas on a mission. Holy work means that you are leading other people in Bible study. Holy work means on and on and on. But unholy or at least non-sacred work is everything else. And everybody else sells the homes and the real estate and the, and the cars and does the maintenance and fixes computers and designs computer programs. That's the less than holy, but the real holy is set apart and elevated among us, and I say baloney to that. I think every honest work is holy work. The Bible would I think pretty well support me in this because God had a way of breaking into the lives of just ordinary secular people to get sacred things done. Think of Moses, for example. God says to Moses, Moses, what you got in your hand? Oh, it's just this old shepherd's rod. Moses, throw it down before me. Moses threw down before God what he happened to have in his hand. And it turned into an instrument of deliverance for the people of Israel. A schoolboy follows the crowd out to hear this new teacher and miracle worker, and he takes his bag lunch with him. 
And his bag lunch uh, somehow winds up presented to this Jesus. And the bag lunch gets turned into from a lunch of of one little boy to a lunch of 5,000 men and uncounted women and children. It is God breaking into the normal, the ordinary events of our lives which more characterizes Him than God working strength to strength. What does the Scripture say? God's power is made perfect in power? Uh-uh. God's power is made perfect in? In weakness. Well, where do you find the weakness? You find, well, you can find it anywhere you please. But in the eyes of the world... You know, the non-secular type, the secular type, just the average Joe Blow. But he gets a call from God. A call from God. He may not know it's from God. He just got this sense that this is what he's supposed to be doing. And, And that's his job waiting for him. And within the context of that job, God is just liable to show up in a most powerful of all ways. Listen, no powerful contemporary of Jesus was called to follow Him as a disciple. All of the men called to follow Jesus as His disciples were what we might call blue-collar workers with the possible exception of Matthew who was a tax collector. Now that hasn't changed. And history bears witness to the fact that there is no division in the kingdom of God between the sacred and the non-sacred. And however many vocations we have represented in this room this morning, every single one of them contains a certain amount of holiness. God raising up and training and empowering and gifting and then intersecting other people's lives with divine appointments along the way such that what we really have what we really have here this morning is a room full of ministers right one of the uh, most famous of of uh, devotional writers who discovered this blending of the secular and sacred in vocational call was a, uh, a, Catholic nun, a Catholic monk called Brother Lawrence. Brother Lawrence lived in the 17th century. That's the 1600s. He was, he was French. He was a part of a priory in um, Paris. And Brother Lawrence developed this worldview that everything that he would do in this world, he would do out of his deep, deep, deep love for God. So Brother Lawrence is remembered as the one who stays in the kitchen washing the pots and the pans while all of the other monks go and pray. Brother Lawrence would stay stay behind and do all that dirty duty stuff so his brothers could go and devote themselves to a higher calling. But none of them are remembered and only he is from that French priory. And uh, even today we talk about the work of Brother Lawrence. And Brother Lawrence would say things like this. If I have to flip over a piece of bread in a skillet to warm it on the other side, I flip it over because I love God with all of my heart. And I flip over that piece of bread as an expression of my love for Him. 
he would say things like, if I pick up a piece of straw from the floor, I pick up that piece of straw because I love God with all of my heart. And so with all of my focus and all of my energy and all of my being, I pick up that piece of straw. Or, if I wash pots and pans, I wash pots and pans singing glory to God that I have opportunity to take that which is dirty and make it clean again. Now listen, that all is very much within our reach. It's never changed. It is in the secular world that some of the noblest, highest, holiest concepts are born. David, a shepherd, later wrote, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. You know the psalm. Where did he get that? In seminary? Was that a part of some ordination devotional? Where did David get the thoughts and the words to the most famous psalm ever written except as an unclean shepherd boy watching over sheep on the hillsides? And I say unclean because shepherds were considered unclean because they had to work on the Sabbath. And God reached down and took this very secular figure and made him an instrument of holiness in a secular world. You think of Jesus and how he was raised. I learned something recently. I'm still learning. I never heard this before. But it appears that the word that is normally translated in our scriptures as carpenter for the father of Jesus can actually be a little wider word than just working with wood. It can actually mean construction worker. It can actually mean somebody who builds things, builds houses. And most of the houses weren't made of wood anyway. They were made of stone. So it could have been that Jesus' dad was both stonemason as well as carpenter as well as as general fix-it-up man. And Jesus is watching this now in this very secular home. And Jesus later on would say, uh, you build a house on sand fall down when the storms rage and those dry wadi beds fill up with water. But if you build a house on the rock, it's going to endure the wind and the waves and the torment. Where did he get that? Did Jesus get that from seminary? Jesus get that from reading Bible commentaries? Jesus got it from his dad who was a construction worker. The fact is, this division in our minds between sacred and secular is phony. And we've allowed the world or the church or our own misguided conscience to do that to us and to take away one of the greatest of all realities. That the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And that means every vocation, every job, every task is all within the loving, guiding hands of our Creator, God. Listen, if God had needed really highly educated, powerful, fanciful people to do His work, He would not have called the nation of Israel. (laughs) Homeless nomads, no capital, no property, no king, no constitution and bylaws, no ambassador to neighboring states, the outcasts of the world. And he would not have called from the people of Israel 
Someone like Mary, an unwed teenage girl, about to bear the Son of God and bring Him into this world in the most secular of all settings, a borrowed barn in the back lot of some motel. There is no difference between secular and sacred in terms of any inherent qualities. There are no exemptions here. God sows and the kingdom of God reaps and God sows secular, sacred seed in secular ground. Which makes wherever you go, 9 o'clock on Monday morning, just another one of His temples. It's another one of those places where the miracle of God can incarnate itself in people like you. Because there is no division between holy, unholy, sacred, and secular in terms of how God is working in this world. God takes His own cues from the lowest among us. What do you think about the job of foot washing in the first century? How do you think the job of foot washing guests who come into your house went over in terms of being a a job that you looked forward to or you were really proud of? Anybody in Scripture do any foot washing? What was Jesus doing here? when He washed the feet of His disciples. He was going to the bottom of the secular barrel. Wasn't He? You just don't touch anybody's bare feet. Even now over there. The part of the culture you never show the bottom of your foot. That's a great insult. Jesus went to the bottom of the secular barrel and He washed His disciples' feet and then He said... You know why I've done this for you? I have set you an example so that you can what? You can also wash one another's feet. To this day, they do not teach foot washing in seminary. I think it might be a good thing to do, actually. Teach a little humility to our seminarians. Jesus, I mean, Peter said something after all the rigors and distress of the crucifixion. Peter said, I'm going fishing. What was that about? Why did Simon Peter, who would become the head of the church, who would become the chief apostle, uh, who was one of Jesus' best friends, Peter, James, and John, hung out with Jesus more than anybody else, why after the crucifixion did Simon Peter just say, I am going fishing? the rest of the men came along too. Was he giving up? Was he saying, listen, I can't do this job anymore. I'm going back to my former vocation. I know fishing. I don't know this crucifixion and resurrection stuff. Or could it have been that Peter sensed that in that secular setting where he had met Jesus so many times before, he would find Him again. Now I want to suggest to you, you may have met Jesus more 
where you go at 9 o'clock on Monday mornings than you've met Him anywhere else in your life. Remember, vocari, vocation means calling. It's just that you haven't recognized His hand moving among you. But it has been there and will continue to be there. So, take this caution. Do not adopt hopelessness, despair in your place of work. Do not let Satan tell you that you are a nobody and what you're doing doesn't amount to anybody's good. Do not fall into the weariness and the temptations of the flesh and see yourself as just an anonymous, unimportant figure who passes quickly through this world and is gone. You have a calling. Every single one of you have a calling. Just as important as somebody who has reverend in front of his name. And your temple may be that place you go on Monday morning. But the first thing I want to say to you is simply, all honest work is holy. Second thing, all honest workers are holy. Honest work is holy. By extraction and extension, all honest workers are holy. All who do their work as the work of God are themselves priests unto God. Now, holy is as holy does. Not completely. There is always grace. But there is this sense of the holiness of our own being that should set us free to graze in some pastures we have not permitted ourselves before because we did not think we were worthy. That secretary who goes down to the day room and she's crying needs somebody from God to speak to her. That delivery man who comes into your office and he's got the bags under his eyes and you can see from his affect that not all is well with him may need you more than he needs anybody else in this world at that moment. You are a priest before God. Go ahead, ordain yourself. Just put your hand on your own head and say, I ordain me as a priest before God because I have a sacred calling and that makes me a sacred servant of His. And I will no longer demean myself or withdraw myself when God puts me in a time and a place where I can be a reverend to someone else. We don't take this ordination thing too seriously, of course. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who was one of the more famous of British preachers, refused to be ordained. Had a great ministry without it, but he said that ordination was nothing more than placing empty hands on empty heads. 
And so he would not allow it. That's not kind of the ordination that we're talking about. I am talking about receiving what God Himself is offering you to raise you up and to empower you and to equip you as one of His servants and His representatives. And that makes you as much of a minister wherever you go on Monday morning as anybody who comes here on Sunday morning. You are also a reverend. There are priestly privileges. There are priestly responsibilities that you can allow yourself listening, offering grace, affirming, praying for. Relationships within your workplace may give you a harvest that the reverends in your church will never be able to produce because those people are out of touch. I went through a divorce 2004. Like to kill me. I just wanted to ball up and dig a hole and zip it shut after me. I felt like such a failure. I'm just now getting to the point where I can talk about it. I had to go in and tell my CPA, the guy who did my taxes, that there was a change in my filing status. And I sat down and I started to cry. I couldn't even get it out. And this godly man looked back over that desk at me and he said, Brian, I think as highly of you right now as I have ever thought of you before. You are a good man. And you are my friend. Nobody else in that in the world could have done for me at that moment what my CPA did. The Pope couldn't. And it was simply a matter of His stepping in to His identity as a minister of God and seizing the moment and blessing me as only a child of God could have. Listen, there are teachable, reachable moments that come to us, come to all of us. It's even better than maybe to ordain clergy. I mean, when you sit up all night long in the waiting room of ICU with a friend whose wife may not make it, when you walk through a divorce with somebody you care about, when you are there when... The child struggles greatly. You sit in the lobby of ER. When you go to a place where someone dear has died, dear to somebody else, has died, you have stepped into a window of witness that has been laid out before you, I believe, intentionally by your God. And there are no degrees and there are no official church organizations, I mean ordinations, which are going to empower you to serve any better than stepping into that moment and loving somebody in Jesus' name as you have a right to because you also are ordained ministers of God. And if you miss that moment, if you miss that moment, the consequences could be tragic.
How does it go for want of a nail, the shoe was lost? For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the rider was lost. For want of the rider, the message was lost. For want of a message, the battle was lost. For want of a the battle, the kingdom was lost. All for the want of a horseshoe nail. Your horseshoe nail. Your moment of witness and opportunity of being a servant of God in a time of need may have impact in people's lives and in the world around you far beyond anything you'll ever see or understand until you cross over to the other side. Make your your vocation not what you do for a living. Make your vocation what you do for a loving. And it's 24-7 with no exemptions. Whatever you do, Scripture says, do all as having done it before the Lord. Mark Twain said the secret of success is taking your vocation and making it your vacation. Listen. Being God's representative in a time of need is just one of the funnest things you could ever do on vacation. When you realize you've made a difference, there's nothing you can be paid to equal that sense of joy that God has chosen you for that moment. Well, the two things I wanted to say to you this morning, really rather foundational and fundamental, and I hope you'll dwell on them. The first thing is there is that that all honest work is holy. And second, that all honest workmen are holy. One last thing. Kind of contradicts what I've already said, but in all of this, don't take yourself too seriously. Let God set the chronology. Let God move you along. He'll open doors for you. Don't force it. Wait on it. But when the door opens... For God's sake, literally, for God's sake, don't forget, all honest work is holy. All honest workmen are holy. And you might be there for this purpose, for this time, ordained by God, and you are it. There's not going to be anybody else. You are it. Don't miss Him when He comes.